coming up on this week's podcast. A relationship, though, can't be restored unless both parties have come to a mutual understanding. God already gets it, but he wants us to get it. He knows what we need in order for our relationship with him to be restored. In David's case, he sent Nathan to confront the sin and bring it to light. He's going to do what it takes to get our attention. He'll do the same for us. Stay tuned for more. Welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Julie Coleman with today's message. My sister-in-law used to live down the street from us. We lived in Lanham, and, and um, she was very close by. And she used to love to take my kids off to certain events, fun things for them to do. And she had bought tickets to take them to this children's theater thing, um, which was great. And, um, and, but I had to get the kids right back from school immediately after school was over. And I was a teacher at the time. And so I was there at school, so it was just a matter of after school, piling everybody in the car and getting home. Well, it was a long day, and I forgot. And so I graded papers for a while, and I talked to teachers in the teacher's lounge, and blah, blah, blah. And then finally, loaded the kids in the car. We went to McDonald's, got some milkshakes, and then finally drove home from Annapolis down to Lanham. And as I turned onto the street, not having a clue at what I had just done, I'm pulling up, and I see my sister-in-law standing in my driveway with her foot tapping. And then I remembered, oops, I had just, you know, she had these tickets. No longer could she take the kids. It was too late. But instead of saying, oh, my goodness, I forgot, and thereby admitting to the irresponsible, thoughtless person that I was, instead, I started, I got a little angry. And I felt a little self-justified. I mean, I was very, I was working very hard. I was raising four kids. She wasn't raising four kids. And she doesn't know what it's like. And by the time I got out of the car, I was mad at her. And so I started talking to her. And, 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 she, and she said, you know, did you forget? I mean, I have these tickets and now we can't go. It's too late. And I said, listen, work went very late today. And I made all these excuses. And I would not admit to the fault that I had. Well, she stomped down to her house, and I stomped into my house. And, of course, she had seen the kids carrying the milkshake, so she knew I definitely had taken my time in getting home. And so all afternoon I stewed, and I was mad, and I'm sure she was furious too, and we were in our separate houses. And by the time my husband got home, I was in tears because I knew darn well what I needed to do. I needed to go to her and confess what I had done and apologize and get past it. So, but I was mad. And I was a little bit mad at God that I had to do that. And so as I was walking down the street toward her house, I was telling God, okay, I'm just doing this for you because because I'm a godly person and I'm just going to do this, but I don't really agree with it because it's not my fault. I just forgot. By the time I got down there, I was in a huff. I knocked on her door. She answered it. And I burst into tears, (laughs) and I said, I forgot, and I'm sorry. And and, And immediately she threw her arms around me, and we had a wonderful time of confession and forgiveness. And I went in, I had a cup of tea, everything was fine. But the thing is, if I had not done that, if I had not gone to her, if I had not gotten that thing out in the open, that would have stayed between us in our relationship, and it would have damaged the relationship in some way. Um, 
she may have well forgiven me, knowing what a flake that I am, and just excused it, but the guilt would have kept me from feeling comfortable with her. That's what I want to talk about today, is the problem with guilt. So the first thing we, we talked about, uh, or we, there was the two weeks that we're going to be doing together, deep cleaning for the heart and soul, is all about Psalm 51. And the first week, this week, we're going to be talking about cleaning out the cobwebs. Because God gives us a very vivid picture of how the guilt in sin can wreck a relationship with him. And he gives it to us in the story of King David. Now, if you think of King David, I'm sure you think of lots of things, but a lot of us would immediately think of his sin with Bathsheba. King David was a very successful king. He was following on the heels of Saul, the first king of Israel. And Saul didn't really leave much to David in terms of a kingdom. But when David took over, God blessed David. Um, God called David a man after his own heart. Um, and, and David loved the Lord with all his might and all of his heart. Uh, David enjoyed very great blessings from God. He had um, a successful kingdom, all kinds of lifetime achievements. He, he himself was a great warrior, um, did a lot of things on the battlefield. He established a central government for the country of Israel, and he also captured Jerusalem and made it its cap, the Israel's capital. Um, he organized the priests into a working um, organization. He had a very successful army, um, lots of riches. I mean, he really did a lot of great things um, in Israel. So he was very successful. Um, 2 Samuel 8.14 says, The Lord helped David wherever he went. And there's lots of incidences where David has to make a decision, and it says, And David inquired of the Lord. So there was this wonderful back-and-forth relationship, this personal relationship that David had with um, the Lord himself. But that all came to a screaming halt one evening. Um, it was kind of a, a time of relative peace for Israel. And so David's armies had gone out to fight their battles in the springtime. They said, that's, when kings went out to battle, I guess, I don't know, start to see buds on the trees, it's time to go fight somebody. But they ended up going out into battle, and David stayed home. And one night he was walking around um, on the roof of his palace, and he looked down and he noticed, really noticed, this beautiful woman taking a bath down below, and he wanted her. And so he sent his messengers and said, who is that woman? And they told him exactly who she was, Uriah's wife. But he wanted her anyway. And so he sent the messengers, had her brought to the palace, and he slept with her, committed adultery. Now, just to let you know that David was not some guy who was hard up for a woman. He already had seven wives, okay? And so he had these seven wives, but he wanted Bathsheba. So he sent for her. And a few weeks later, Bathsheba sent word she was pregnant. Um, which was especially horrifying, in spite of all the adultery and all, even worse because her husband, Uriah, was off on the battlefield. So there was no way he could have been the one that got her pregnant. So David starts to think, well, how am I going to cover this up? Well, what he does is he calls Uriah back from the battlefield. And he wants some news of what was going on. And so he asks him about questions about Joab and the captain um, of the army and all. And he's... he's um, trying to cover, you know, and now Uriah, okay, good, I'm glad you gave me all that news, now go home, spend some time with your wife. But um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the show, uh, is Northern Exposure. It was popular back in the 90s. My husband has, like, all the CDs because he loves it, because it's this Chicago cop, and he's paired up with this Canadian Mountie. And, oh, due south, I'm sorry, due south, not Northern Exposure. And um, so, so this Chicago cop is kind of, you know, typical Chicago cop. And the Mountie is like Dudley Do-Right, you know. 
always wanting to do the right thing, you know. It only takes a moment to be courteous, he's always saying. And, and he's just as cute as can be. We just adore him. I've even got a picture of a Mountie on my family room wall. Our family loves him so much. But anyway, this is what Uriah was like. He was kind of like the Mountie of David's army. <laughs> and so David says, go home and sleep with your wife. And he said, I cannot sleep with my wife. I need to be true to my troops. And the Ark of the Covenant is in some tent. Why should I be in a house? And so he refuses to go into his wife, which kind of ruins David's plans for, you know, covering up the sin with Bathsheba. And so David tries again. He gets him drunk again. Uriah doesn't do it. So now David's kind of stuck that he's got to somehow get rid of Uriah before his sin comes out. Now, it's worth mentioning that the people involved in this, Uriah and Bathsheba, were no strangers to David. Bathsheba herself is um, named in uh, 2 Samuel 11, 3, that she is the daughter of Eliam, who is the son of Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was a counselor that David uh, used to give him great counsel. And the Bible says that his counsel was characterized as respected as from the Lord himself. So her grandfather, Bathsheba's grandfather, was well-known by David and greatly respected by David. And her husband, Uriah, he wasn't just some nobody. He was one of David's 37 mighty men. Those men that went with David from cave to cave around the countryside for all those years when Saul was chasing David around trying to kill him. And those men were largely used by God, were responsible for getting David into his reign, his mighty men. And Uriah was one of them. So this is a guy David knew well, and he was taking his wife. So knowing the relationships that are on there, it's even more horrifying when you hear what David did next. Because David sends a, lot, a letter back with Uriah to the front to the captain of the army, Joab, and tells him, put Uriah out in the front where there's most fierce fighting and then withdraw the troops and leave him undefended. And that's what Joab did. And guess what? Uriah was killed. So the message gets sent back. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba goes through an appropriate period of mourning. David takes her in as his wife and she has the baby. Things are looking pretty good for David, huh? Looks like he got that thing settled. Nobody knows, except maybe Joab, what exactly is going on. And so he thinks he's all set. You know, my husband and I were um, spreading mulch in the springtime, and he got a splinter of mulch underneath his fingernail. And it wasn't that big of a splinter, but it hurt, you know. It was bothering him. He washed it, tried to get out best his hand, but it had gone down into where the fingernail uh, in between the fingernail and the skin. It was painful, and so he just thought, you know, maybe it would just go away. Well, by that night, it had gotten kind of red and kind of swollen. By the next morning, he could hardly move his finger. And he realized that he had to get that splinter out, or, <laughs> or he was going to be in trouble. So he cut the nail down to the quick, and he dug down deep, and he got that splinter out of his finger. Well, that's how sin can be. When it's allowed to remain covered and glossed over, it can fester. And it can, uh, it can become infected in, in, in the spiritual sense um, and poison our relationship with God. So what do you think David's relationship with God was like after he went through all that and did all that murdering and adultery and all that stuff? I don't think he was going and inquiring of the Lord anymore, do you? He wasn't rushing off to the temple and worshiping. I bet he was avoiding the Lord at all costs because he knew what he had done. And he knew the Lord had known what he had done also. He started to avoid the presence of the Lord. And for a guy like David, who had a heart after God, 
that must have been torture that to have that block between him and um, and uh, God. Well, God doesn't let David fester forever. In about a year, he sends Nathan, the prophet, off to David to tell him a story. And he tells him a story of a lamb, a, a, a man, a poor man who only has one lamb, and he loves that lamb with all of his heart, and they treat it like part of the family, kind of a family pet. He sleeps on his breast, it says, and he just has this wonderful relationship with this animal. Meanwhile, next door, there's a rich guy with flocks and flocks of lambs. The rich guy has somebody come and visit him, and he wants to um, slay a lamb to have for a big dinner. But instead of taking one of his flock, he goes over to the poor man's house and takes his pet lamb and slaughters that. Well, David hears the story that Nathan the prophet's telling him, and he says, What? That man makes to, means to make restitution four times as much as he took from that man. That's a terrible thing that he did. And Nathan looked him straight in the eye and said, That man is you. You're the one who took Bathsheba, the only wife of Uriah. You're the one who committed adultery, and then you murdered Uriah to have her as your own, to cover your sin. Now, David's response. Here he is, king of Israel, successful. This is, what, this is what he, how he responds. Oh, sorry, I let it go too long. I have sinned against the Lord. Admits it. No fooling around here. He understands. God knows, he knows, and he's admitting it. And this is what Nathan tells him in response. The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. David says, I have sinned, and God's first response is, you're forgiven. You're forgiven for your sin. Now, after Nathan left, David sat down and expressed his emotions for what was happening in a psalm. Now, we love David's psalms. We're great recipients of his great work, and it was a great way for him to express himself. It's Psalm 51. And you'll notice at the top of Psalm 51, it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So he wrote this psalm after confessing his sin before Nathan and Nathan telling him, You're forgiven. This is what he writes. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from the blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray and ask for God's wisdom as we look at this psalm together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for putting David's story in the Bible. Thank you that we can see someone who has done the worst of all evils and yet has been forgiven by you and was restored in his relationship. Help us, God, to um, view this psalm with spiritual eyes. Give us understanding through your Holy Spirit. Guide my words, Lord. Um, and send your message through me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing you notice about Psalm 51 is the overwhelming sorrow with which it's written. That sorrow for his sin. There's no pretense attempted. He doesn't try to blame anybody else or any circumstances. He's ready to take full responsibility for his actions. He's sick at what it's done to his relationship with God. You can see this longing for the way it used to be. And, and the wishing for the joy. So in desperation, God, David throws himself on God's mercy. And he's really requesting two things. The first thing he's requesting is to be forgiven for his offense. And the second is to have his relationship with God restored to the glory that it once was. And so uh, we're going to look this week at the forgiveness part, forgiven for his offense. And next week we'll be looking at the relationship with God being restored. The first thing we can learn from David is this. When you've allowed sin to come between you and God, we need to know that he stands ready to restore our relationship with him. And he's already done what it takes. The first thing he's done, and this is where you can start filling in the blanks on your back of your program, he has already provided for absolute forgiveness. It's a done deal. David asks for forgiveness on three different levels, and I'm going to show you in a minute. Um, He uses three different Hebrew words to talk about getting clean. The first one we find in verse 1, where he writes, blot out my transgressions. Now that word blot out um, in Hebrew, um, I won't won't try to pronounce the word, but I can tell you what it means. (laughs) It means literally to wipe off or destroy a memory. It's, uh, he wants to be declared judicially innocent, declared innocent, like in a court. You know, one of my kids had a traffic violation back when he was uh, just out of high school. And um, somebody told us that if you go to the court and plead your case, that you can avoid getting points put on your license. And since I was paying his um, insurance, we decided that would be a really good thing to do. And so we decided we'd go. I took a half day off work, and we arrived at the courthouse up in Glen Burnie, and and um, I had brought papers to grade because I figured we'd be sitting in the courtroom for a while hearing everybody else's cases. And I forgot that I had a knife from my lunch in my book bag with my papers. And so I put everything in on the conveyor belt to be checked through with security. And they called me over. Uh, ma'am? And I came over. He said, do you understand you have a knife in your book bag? And I went, oh. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, that was from lunch. See how it's dirty? I'm holding it up. So we're walking up at the courthouse. My son's like, okay, Mom, thanks for coming. So far, we've almost gotten arrested. <laughs> well, anyway, we got up to the court, and, um, 
And uh, he was one of the first people called. And so he got up and, and, the guy, and the judge asked him, you know, do you have any family present? And he said, well, yeah, my mom's there. And I stood up and the judge motioned me over. And he said, do you have anything you want to say, ma'am? And I said, yes, this will never happen again. <laughs> and the whole courtroom burst out laughing. But the judge ended up giving him something called probation before judgment. They call it PBJ. Isn't that funny? <laughs> like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And what that means is that they put your, the person who has gotten this traffic violation on a probation period. And if they stay clean and they don't have any more traffic violations, at the end of the probationary period, they blot it off the record. You're wiped clean, declared innocent. It's over. You just have to be good for that probationary period, which is a wonderful thing because it keeps you from having something on your permanent driving record. That's what David was asking God for. He was asking him for to be declared judicially innocent. You know, th th that's what he is asking for. A second kind of iniquity he was asking for was in verse 2. Cleanse me from my iniquity. That word cleanse means a thorough washing. It was literally the kind of washing that the people would do to get their laundry clean. They would take their laundry down by the river and they would stomp on it. Now, it's not exactly my best way of washing clothes, but it worked, I guess, for them. And so they would stop on these clothes and get the stains out. And that's the kind of washing that David was asking about in verse 2. And then a third kind of washing is in verse 7. It was when he asked, cleanse me, cleanse, there's that word again, with hyssop. Now, this would be a ceremonial kind of cleansing. Um, if you, hyssop may sound a little familiar to you. It's the same thing that, it's, it's, a, it's a plant. It's in the mint family. It's about three feet high, a bush. And people would break off uh, branches of hyssop when Moses um, was telling the Jews how to get ready for the um, Passover. And he told them to dip hyssop into the uh, blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost. You remember that, right? Well, that's, that was like a ceremonial thing, this hyssop. And the priests were told in Leviticus to take blood and put it on hyssop and sprinkle it on lepers to make them clean so that they could go and worship and, and be at the temple. That's the kind of cleansing that David's talking about in verse 7. So David covered all his bases. <laughs> he wanted to be personally clean. He wanted God's record on him to be clean, and he wanted to be ceremonially clean so that he could now be fit for service at, um, in God's service. But here's something to think about. Now, remember, I told you, Nathan came, talked to David about his sin, and then at the end left, and that's when David wrote Psalm 51, asking to be all these cleans. But Nathan had already told David, your sins are forgiven. So why was David writing this and asking God to be clean if he was already told that God had forgiven his sin? Well, I have a theory. <laughs> I think the sin was gone, but the guilt remained in David's mind. And that guilt was going to keep David from a relationship with God. He wasn't going to be able to be intimate with God anymore because he felt so guilty. Does that make sense? That's how I think it is. <laughs> Um, and I'll show you why as we go through here. The problem was David, and the sin stood between him and David's mind. And the, the, the truth is that David was never going to have that kind of relationship with God, never make it right, until David got honest with God. He, God um, urges his people in Isaiah, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. 
reason together. Let's talk about it. Let's get it out in the open. Let's deal with it. And you're, then you'll be feeling as white as snow. Well, how about you? Does guilt ever keep you from feeling intimate with God? Um, does it make you hesitate to ask too much from him? Or maybe to rely too much on him? Feeling like there's something you need to be doing to make this thing work? Um, knowing how unworthy you are? Does guilt play a part in your relationship with God? And here's a good litmus test for you. What comes to your mind when I mention the judgment seat of Christ? In your mind, is that a joyful thing? Or is that thing you think, oh boy, I dread that one. If you're dreading it, then guilt's an issue for you. Because when you come before the judgment seat of Christ, you are not going to have your sins brought before you. God has removed them as far as the east is from the west. God has done everything to make us able to be totally clean in his sight. And like David, we can be, we are, have been made judicially clean. Romans 5.18 says this, So as though, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. That word justification is a judicial term, and it means to be declared innocent. So God has done that for us. Remember David wanted to be washed clean like stomping the laundry in the river? God has done that for us already. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, get this, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. It's done. We've been made thoroughly clean, just as David asked about. And the third thing is we've been made ceremonially clean to be able to serve. In Hebrews it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We've been made ceremonially clean and are fit for service. So he's done everything that we needed him to do. Because God is all about the relationship with us. He's already done everything necessary to clear the way for us to relate to him on the most intimate of terms. So if there's a problem about guilt, guess who it's with? Us. God has taken our guilt away already. We're allowing our guilt to come between us, even though Christ already paid for the sin. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will lift you up. He's ready to meet us exactly where we are if we turn to him and we're honest with him and bring before him our guilt. There's only one way to solve the problem. And it's all in place for us to renew that relationship. So our attitude in, God, in approaching God makes all of the difference. The first thing we need, and David has taught us, is that we need a broken heart. A broken heart. Now, it's really interesting to read David's psalm in light of what went on with Saul, the, the king before David, as he was, um, when, when he sinned and was told that he would no longer be king. Saul had gone out to fight against the Amalekites, and God had told Saul... Take no booty, take no treasure, destroy everything, including all the kings, everybody. Do not come back with a thing. Saul didn't do that. He took the best of everything, 
and took it back with him. Well, God sends Samuel, the prophet, to meet Saul on the road. And he tells Saul, you know, we see what you've done. And first Saul denies the whole thing. And then he tries to justify it. Well, we brought back this stuff because um, we wanted to have something good to sacrifice for the Lord. Talk about, you know, good excuse, making it spiritual. Didn't work. And so Samuel continues to confront him. And then Saul says, well, the soldiers made me do it. (laughs) Starts blaming everybody else. And then finally, finally, Saul admits to his guilt. And he says, okay, okay, I've sinned. But what I want you to do now is come with me and I'm going to sacrifice to God so all the people will see everything's okay and you're there and you're giving your okay. And, and, you know, we'll just kind of brush over this thing so that people won't know that I've gotten God's disapproval. Well, Samuel says, "Uh uh-uh, not going to happen, my friend. You know, because, and, and Samuel tells him um, that, that to sacrifice, to make these sacrifices, God doesn't want that. God wants your heart and God wants your repentance, not some function that you want to try to do to look good. Now, when you look at the story of Saul and the words that Samuel and Saul repeated, they're echoed in Psalm 51. Now, David wasn't there, at least in terms of what the scripture shows, at all during that time. As a matter of fact, we don't really meet David until after Saul's sin. And so so how did David know? Well, probably Samuel told him, because Samuel was very close to David. And so he probably told him what had happened. And you see some of those same words echoed in David's psalm. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. One of the first things God did when Saul had done this disobedience was take his spirit from him. And it says that he was tormented, t- tormented by an evil spirit. He had this mental illness, terrible depression. He'd go, you know, hot, cold, you know, nice, mean. He, he was like this crazy person because the Holy Spirit had been taken from him. Now David's request is, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. <laughs> you see why he asked that. Then he says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Right before that, let me turn to it real quick. I should have put that up there. He says this, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. And then he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's almost a direct quote from what Samuel said to Saul. And here it is in Psalm 51. Samuel said to Saul, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed better than the fat of rams. So David was sorry. He had grieved God. And we see a real contrast in his confession and his sorrow for his sin. Saul was sorry he was caught. David was sorry he had sinned. And there's a real difference between the two of them. And he's very honest with God. He clearly sees himself for what he is. My sin, my heart. He doesn't pass or try to diminish the blame. There's a commentator that said this quote I thought was really good. True confession makes no excuse or apology. It makes no attempt to delude self, deceive, or dissemble with God. It just says it like it is. And throws our, throw ourselves on the mercy of God. True confession admits the guilt. So we need a broken heart. The next thing we need, according to David, is a contrite spirit. Contrite. That's one of those words you get thrown around a lot in Christian circles. Does anybody really know what it means? Well, I'm about to tell you. (laughs) It means repentant. 
It's to, uh, to regret to the point of being willing to change your ways or habit. It's really proof of a broken heart. If you grieve the sin that much, then you're going to want to oust it out of your life and get it as far away from you as possible. And that's what a contrite heart is. Now, David shows a contrite heart in some of the things he's thinking about for the future, what he's going to do to turn himself around um, in his repentance. He says, and there's a bunch of I wills. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. I will sing of your righteousness. I will declare your praise. His intention now is to renew his commitment to living for the Lord. And he's so sorry for his sin, he's willing to make that 180 degree turn. And you'll notice that David has great confidence in verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He knew that if he came to God with those two things, a broken heart, a contrite spirit, that God would restore him. You will not despise. He knew that that's what God would do. A relationship, though, can't be restored unless both parties have come to a mutual understanding. God already gets it, but he wants us to get it. He knows what we need in order for our relationship with him to be restored. In David's case, he sent Nathan to confront the sin and bring it to light. He's going to do what it takes to get our attention. He'll do the same for us. The first thing he's going to do is he will work in us until we're ready to be restored. Now, for those of you who fry frequently enough, you remember that every time as you're getting into a plane and you sit down, you fasten your seatbelt, the, um, the flight attendant gets up front and they give a little speech about safety, right? Should the air pressure drop, here's how to put the mask on. Always put the one on you first before assisting the person next to you. I could give this to you from memory. <laughs> this is how you put your seatbelt on. Here are your exit doors. And they go through this whole rigmarole. What's interesting to me is I'm sitting in a plane watching. Very few people are actually listening to that speech. Now, Southwest Air, who I like to fly with, um, they've kind of tried a new angle on things. They put a lot of humor into things that they tell, and so it kind of gets people's attention. Um, Steve and I were taking a plane a couple years ago up to um, Manchester, New Hampshire, and the plane it was a Sunday morning, uh, kind of drippy, rainy day, and not too many people were on the plane. I'd say the plane was about a third full. So as we're getting on the plane, the flight attendants were saying, spread out, take your seats, there's lots of room, we've only got a third of the plane filled today, but please sit near a window so when we arrive in Manchester, Delta and U.S. Air will think we're full. <laughs> well, the same flight attendant um, started, you know, giving us the seat belt, the exit signs, and so and he said, now in the event, should the air pressure in the cabin suddenly drop, and he stopped there and he said, and if we thought that that was going to happen this morning, none of us would have shown up for work. <laughs> And he used humor, which got me listening to his little spiel, right? And that's why they used it, because of that reason. So we ignore this wonderful safety stuff that really is very necessary should something happen on the plane. But I'll tell you what, if something happens midair, I was just watching a couple of nights ago about the um, pilot that landed the plane on the Hudson River. It was a documentary. You know, I'll bet those people didn't listen to a word about, you know, how to, how to land safely in a crash. But now that they were crashing... And the stewardess gets up and tells them how to take their seat cushion and use it as a safety device or a flotation device. I'll bet you they were listening then, right? We had their attention because the plane was going down. We only listen when we feel a need. And that's how God, what God has to do. He has to work in us to make awareness of our needs so that we're ready to listen to him. Paul reminded the Philippians this. 
For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Happens over and over again. We sin, and then God gets our attention with some kind of a discipline. And now we'll be ready to listen. Hebrews said it this way. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it. And afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The discipline is there for our good, and it's there to bring us to the point that we can be restored by him. And once we have the correct perspective, he's ready to welcome us into an intimate, ever-deepening relationship with God. There's a biblical example of that in the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3. It's one of the seven churches that um, Christ writes a letter to. And the, this is uh, ruins of Laodicea. <laughs> um, definitely past its former glory. But what the problem with the Laodicean church was that they were uh, very wealthy people. And they had gotten very financially independent, feeling very comfortable with their circumstances. And they had lost sight of their desperate need for God. And because of that, God says, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And he's calling to their attention that very thing. And then he tells them of his readiness to restore that relationship. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Again, that same pattern is portrayed. Church falls into the sin of self-sufficiency and hard-heartedness, and God stands ready to restore that relationship, so he tells them what they need. They need brokenness, and they need repentance. When we come to him with broken hearts for our sin and contrite spirit, he's ready, and, and we're ready to change, then our fellowship with God is restored. You know, a potter has a lump of clay at the beginning of his project. It's a hard, unyielding lump. So he takes that lump of clay and he bangs it on the table a bunch of times. He pounds it with his fist. He kneads it. And he has to soften it, soften it, soften it until finally it's ready to be formed into what he has envisioned for it all along. Well, God works with us much in the same way. He's interested in conforming us to the image of Christ and he'll often use discipline or circumstances and maybe even just the natural consequences of our sin to get our attention, soften our hearts, and then he's able to mold us more closely into his image. So it's time to deal with the cobwebs in our lives. We need to take an honest look at the sin. We need to stop the denial, stop making excuses, and come before him, admit what we are, and then bask in the wonderful glow of his forgiveness and grace and mercy and have that right relationship restored with him. And when he does restore it, it will be something more meaningful and deeper than it was even before. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. New Hope Chapel.